And so that really tells us that things like wearing a mask can really reduce the risk. And unfortunately, we've seen uh, clear examples of where failing to do that has resulted in uh, a significant spread. I'm Faith Rogers, host of today's program, COVID-19, Keeping Up with a Moving Target. This is a September 30th update of DKB Med Radio's Coronavirus Educational Series. Thank you for joining us. This activity is jointly provided by the Postgraduate Institute for Medicine, DKB Med, and the Institute for Johns Hopkins Nursing. Today's program is accredited for ANCC and AAPA credit, as well as AMA PRA Category 1 credits. Please visit our website for complete CE information. If you're tuning into our webcast, please click the red claim credit button in the webinar console to attest for credit. Otherwise, please visit covid19.dkbmed.com. There you will also find all of our previous COVID-19 programs and have access to other free CE programs on a wide range of topics. The slides for today's webinar can be found in the resource list window. Today's learning objectives are discuss the contribution of asymptomatic disease to transmission of COVID-19 and describe the limitations of current diagnostic testing methods. This activity is supported by an educational grant from Pfizer Incorporated and in-kind by DKB Med. All activity content and materials have been developed solely by the activity directors, planning committee members, and faculty presenters. With us today, we have Dr. Paul Awater, Clinical Director of the Division of Infectious Diseases at Johns Hopkins School of Medicine. He will be interviewing Dr. Michael Eisen, Professor in the Divisions of Infectious Diseases and Organ Transplantation at Northwestern University Feinberg School of Medicine. Dr. Awater, Dr. Eisen, take it away. Okay, Faith, and uh, thank you, uh, Michael, for joining us. Um, really value your expertise uh, as a respiratory disease expert, infectious disease expert. And uh, with the pandemic and COVID at hand, um, I thought it would be uh, reasonable to catch up on some of the, I would say, contemporary and controversial issues or things that uh, sort of keep us up at night at this uh, stage of the game. Unfortunately, so much has happened and uh, we've made some good headway. Wanted to share just a little bit from maybe a Chicago and Midwest perspective because what I've sort of seen, of course, is a shift uh, in terms of where a lot of COVID cases are occurring and maybe it's not quite the same in Chicago, but what's, what's your perspective at this point just about the epidemiology and trends? Yeah, I think the big thing that we've learned is that uh, COVID-19 and where it peaks in an area uh, changes over time. And there's a lot of uh, potential reasons uh, for that. The initial wave was uh, initially focused on areas on the West Coast, uh, New York, and, and here in the Midwest, particularly in the Chicago. And then things, as things quieted down uh, through uh, much of the North, uh, the cases in the South, Arizona, Texas, Florida, and then other uh, states around the, the South really started to uh, come up during the summer. Those, thankfully, are starting to uh, quiet down. And really, the, the upswing is uh, more in the Midwestern states and the, the mountain states. And some of this may have been triggered by big events in uh, South Dakota um, and other things that have gone on. But also, there seems to be uh, blooms of cases occurring in college towns as uh, students are coming together from around the country. And then uh, sometimes 
not following the kind of the goals of the university of uh, maintaining social distance and uh, spreading the infections uh, there. What we have to look forward to, uh, you know, I think is that we'll see a, probably an increase in areas that were quiet over the summer. Um, clearly our numbers here, for example, in Chicago are going back up and surrounding states, likewise, uh, Indiana and Wisconsin are, are definitely uh, beginning to increase pretty uh, significantly. Yeah. I, I, one, one thing just about spread and transmission, you know, early on, uh, Michael, it, you know, it was droplet versus aerosol. And I think we learned that it's probably something that includes some aerosol components at times. And, and now it's pretty clear not everyone's uh, an infectious bomb, that it's uh, the super spreaders, you know, maybe, you know, a minority of patients, 10 or 20 percent, that might do more spreading than others. But it's a mystery to me. Do you, do you think this is something that's more dependent on just environment and the social behavior of a social spreader? Or, or is there something more intrinsic about the virus and that person's uh, immunology and, and um, early viral titers and inoculum, for example? So just sort of wondering, uh, uh, do you have any uh, insights or any leanings in, in that particular area? So I think one of the biggest challenges uh, with uh, COVID-19 is a large uh, number of patients, particularly younger uh, individuals, have asymptomatic uh, disease. And so for a lot of other uh, viruses, the proportion of uh, patients that are asymptomatic is relatively small. And so when you're, when you're sick, your risk of uh, transmitting usually is close into the symptom onset. So you can identify those patients that are at risk of uh, transmitting and identify people that you've been around to uh, uh, risk transmission. Like the original SARS smallpox. I mean, we could right. find out who's sick and then focus what we can do to control. Correct. But with this, we have two things that are working against us. a relatively long incubation uh, period uh, from initial exposure to uh, development of viral replication, and then uh, a period of time of uh, minimal to, to no symptoms, and a large proportion of the population with this uh, disease that are asymptomatic. And so those individuals, I don't think we even now have a good handle on how many of them are out there and how much transmission is occurring. There have been some recent studies that have used heat map uh, to look at numbers of cases in young adults and then you quickly see shortly after those uh, cases are there that more and more of the older adult population start getting sick. So I think that that asymptomatic uh, patient uh, is probably uh, a major contributor to the spread of the uh, infection. And then the link to it, behavior clearly uh, contributes to that. We both work in hospitals where everyone's required to wear a mask indoors, where we have large number of people coming and going um, from the community, and outbreaks have been thankfully relatively infrequent uh, in those settings. Um, and we're in a setting where we have patients that are sick with COVID coming in for evaluation. And so that really tells us that things like wearing a mask can really reduce the risk. And unfortunately, we've seen uh, clear examples of where failing to do that has resulted in uh, a significant spread. I think the biker rally in South Dakota is probably our best example of this. You had a huge number of people converging from around the country, not doing a good job of masking and social distancing. They then went back, and we've seen 
hundreds of thousands of uh, secondary cases and a number of deaths that can be linked to this event. Um, so again, clearly showing that behavior is a major contributor to uh, disease. Yeah, I think in the news, you may have also seen this wedding in Maine, for yeah. example, that has led to, I think, over 170 cases and a number of deaths in a, in a nursing facility, of course, uh, not directly related to this wedding, but just showing that potential. I think what, what that really highlights, because, you know, just yesterday, one of, a friend of mine on Facebook posted a question asking why they needed to wear a mask. They're young, they're healthy. And I think that uh, wedding uh, example is a prime example. I don't care if you're young, if you're healthy. You come in contact with so many people, some of which may be people in your own family or your friends that have underlying medical conditions or may be at risk for complications. And while you may be able to fight it off and not be admitted, your contacts may not be so lucky. Yeah, that, that's, that's such an excellent point and, and one that I think gets beyond hopefully some of the politics of mask wear and individual liberty, but it uh, not going to be easily settled or changed for a hardcore, unfortunately. But it does point to something I, I thought we could just close on the epi standpoint. Michael, uh, you know, there's been so much focus on numbers of cases. Uh, you know, uh, are you at 10 or under per 100,000? Are you at 5% or less? And you can sort of open up businesses. But, you know, my sense is coronavirus is probably going to be here to stay, like seasonal coronavirus. And although we may have immunizations uh, available that will help, it's probably going to be like a more severe seasonal influenza with us. So the question is, is it time now, instead of talking about the number of cases, is it better to focus on the people at risk and really think about hospitalizations and deaths and really focus on those areas where you see those rising now, albeit there's a lag, as you know, uh, for, for hospitalizations to reflect uh, what's happening in the community. However, I'm just trying to get to the point because I think so many young people, it's going to be impossible to modify their behavior, school children, college students for the long term. So I, I'm just sort of wondering where we should be placing emphasis and understanding of what COVID is doing, because right now it's all focused on just cases. So I do think we need to develop better metrics to, to look at hospitalization and death um, are very hard numbers that are, are critically important. I think the challenge with that, and we saw this very much in some of the states, particularly Florida, that didn't react quite as quickly to rising numbers, but then started reacting when the hospital numbers uh, went up. You had hospitals, thankfully, not getting overwhelmed, as we saw in uh, some areas in New York, but many became very strained uh, by the number of cases. So I think in a year or so, when we have a larger proportion of the population that's been exposed to the virus, perhaps we can look at that as an indicator like we do with the flu, when you start seeing the flu hospitalizations uh, going up. But that being said, even with flu that's been with us for uh, millennia, um, we look at ILI, influenza-like illness that's being seen in the clinic, and that does uh, predate hospitalization. So I do think, you know, whether it's clinical disease or testing, that's going to be a sign for policymakers to make some decisions about 
A, alerting hospitals to be getting ready. And then perhaps, uh, you know, one thing that we haven't uh, had a lot of talk about is no one wants to go down to a shutdown, and I hope we never have to get back there. But we may have to do some enhanced mitigation strategies as the cases start going up. And that's where I think that the, the case counts can be very helpful. Uh, we do see that it is still a reliable uh, indicator for knowing is the community spread relatively stable or is it going up? And so I do think it uh, provides insight for informing uh, policy decisions. And since there's a, a couple week delay between that going up in hospitalizations and then about a month before that uh, starts going up and you start seeing increasing in death, you, you don't want to wait until the, the hospitalizations are, you know, going crazy before you implement. Yeah, I, I think you make very good points on this and, and really uh, alerting the public also, uh, you know, an 85 year old with comorbidities may have different behavior in Vermont right now, for example, than in Missouri or Georgia, uh, just based on community things. So I, I do think this is just so important overall that we don't just deflect to deaths and, and hospitalizations. But as we move into diagnostics, I think there's a lot of confusion yet about COVID-19 and diagnostics. And uh, uh, first, just let me ask, is there a gold standard for the novel coronavirus? I mean, how are we really measuring the accuracy of our tests? Yeah. So still to the day, the gold standard is a PCR swab of the nose. But there are other tests uh, that are out there that can look at this. Um, there's saliva tests. There's now some antigen tests that are uh, being developed. I think the critical thing to, to recognize, particularly for the lay public, is a negative test doesn't always rule out the, the disease, particularly in patients that are asymptomatic. If you were exposed yesterday evening and you come in to get a test today, a negative test doesn't necessarily tell you that you don't have uh, disease. The tests, uh, we know even in patients being admitted to the hospital uh, with uh, COVID-19 with a well-collected uh, nasal swab can be uh, negative in up to 20% of patients that subsequently are diagnosed with uh, COVID-19. So there are limitations uh, to our approach. One of the things that hasn't, again, been uh, uh, carefully looked at is repeat testing. And I think with the antigen tests, this is where a lot of people are, are focusing. Antigen tests have much lower sensitivity than PCR-based tests, but they're cheap and easy to implement. And so you could potentially serially test patients and still catch them in the uh, asymptomatic or early uh, symptomatic uh, time period so that they can be identified and minimize uh, transmission to other individuals. And because of their cost and ease in implementation, uh, you can do those uh, serial tests, which is a little harder from cost and and, and uh, sophistication of uh, collection and sample uh, processing uh, for more complex PCR tests. Yeah, I, I think the, the diagnostics continue to be a source for infectious disease consultants of trying to assist not only uh, uh, practitioners in the community, but even within the hospital uh, as people sort of come on to new rotations or attendings or filling in, they're often not quite up to speed to some of the limitations, maybe hopefully not as confusing as EBV serology or, or something of that nature, but, but still it's, it's something that trying to integrate this I think is difficult. In the remaining minutes, I, I thought we could just touch on COVID-19 therapeutics, obviously vast numbers of clinical trials, a real fire hose of information. Uh, uh, we have two drugs that probably are the standard of care right now, remdesivir, 
Although in our hospital, I don't think we're giving it to people that don't require oxygen, um, even though the uh, EUA was expanded. Uh, so we're staying with severe COVID and, and the same for dexamethasone based on the recovery trial. I think where uh, there's a, a large and um, I think lively debate is on convalescent plasma. And of course, the studies out there, the randomized controlled trials have generally been either insufficiently enrolled because disease has gone away in China and Spain, or negative studies like the India Placid study that you may have seen recently. On the other hand, observational data suggests like this Mount, uh, Mount Sinai, uh, one where matched controls suggest if you can get plasma early that there might be some effect. You know, you've studied respiratory viruses for a long time. We know that uh, convalescent plasma can have varying amounts of antibodies. We know the FDA has now issued the high titer uh, requirement or low titer labeling for the EUA, although it's going to take a, a few weeks to months for most blood banks to, to use that. But uh, tell me a little bit what your view might be at Northwestern and or, or just generally regarding convalescent plasma, I'll tell you briefly uh, and then let you uh, have the floor. At Hopkins, I, I would say most of our practitioners are using it. Uh, we have a neutral stance on it uh, due to lack of, I, I think, robust information, but yet it seems to have been adopted rather widely in concert uh, with remdesivir and dexamethasone. So while the emergency access program was up, well, we did use it. Uh, we've got a 12 hospital system and uh, we too have kept a relatively neutral stance for people that felt that the patient would be benefit from it. Uh, it was offered to the, the patients. With that, we had some diversity in the, uh, the types of patients that received it at the main academic hospital. It was mostly ICU patients and some of the more community hospitals. It was given a little bit earlier in the clinical course. We are going to be looking at that to see if we see any particular population that uh, got better benefit. We too are in a position where despite being sold that the EUA would allow easy access uh, to plasma, uh, the requirement to, to uh, have high titer with a very specific test that not all blood banks have access to has us in a couple of weeks where we're not giving plasma to anyone while we're waiting for our blood bank to get ready and for the consent form to be approved through the, the pathways here. So in fact, it actually reduced the uh, access uh, temporarily. In terms of whether it's something we should use, we definitely need randomized uh, studies. And the reason why I think this is important is uh, a lot of people will point to influenza, where convalescent plasma historically had been used in the setting of uh, uh, pandemics and had shown in, in even randomized uh, trials to, to have uh, benefits. But these were tended to be single centers, small numbers, and uh, the NIH did two large uh, studies uh, for flu one with plasma, one with uh, high titer IVIG, um, that failed to show any benefit with the use of this plasma for influenza. And so I think that that really drives us to need uh, some specific data for this. Additionally, most of the data that we have is looking at convalescent plasma alone. The real question is if you're adding convalescent plasma to remdesivir and dexamethasone, is there any additional benefit to those patients? And I think that's where we are moving to needing data since combination therapy is what effectively most of the patients that are getting treated with these emergency use uh, agents are getting. And so we need to know, are we doing anything with these uh, additional therapies, especially because there are some downsides with plasma. 
Yeah, and I'd have to say, compared to early in the pandemic, I think the character of the average hospitalized patient is now different. Um, the disease might be a little milder. We're not. We're seeing a little bit of a tilt, uh, uh, of course, in who's getting COVID uh, in younger people. But you know, people are a little more aware. They may not be as afraid of going to the hospital and presenting late. So, and then as you point out, we have the new agents that we're incorporating into clinical practice uh, and including better ICU care, uh, anticoagulation and so on. So it's, it really, it's, it's such a moving target. Um, it's, uh, it's something that I think uh, we'll do the best we can, but um, you know, clearly the recovery trial with dexamethasone may be different if we were to employ it now. I yeah. think just in terms of its uh, effect on mortality. Well, and I think the other question even is if you add dexamethasone to early remdesivir, do you still see as much of a benefit uh, to, to the outcome as well? So I, I think we need a lot more data. Well, um, Michael, I really wanted to thank you for sharing your expertise and insights. Uh, this has been fantastic uh, discussing with you COVID-19. And, and I hope anyone that's uh, listening or viewing uh, might join our next segment where we'll talk about COVID-19 and influenza in this upcoming respiratory season. So uh, thanks again for joining. Thank you. Okay, Dr. Eisen, Dr. Allwater, thank you so much. If you're tuning into our webcast, please click the red Claim Credit button in the webinar console to attest for credit. Otherwise, please visit covid19.dkbmed.com. Any questions or issues, feel free to email us at the address listed. To submit questions, please send them to qa at dkbmed.com. That's Q as in question, A as in answer, at dkbmed.com. Again, thanks for joining us and thank you for your dedication to your patients with COVID-19.